everyone. Welcome back to the Coach's Journey podcast. Robbie here, and this is episode number 14. And for those of you who love um, the interview format podcast most of all, you'll be glad to know this is one of those. Um, and I'm delighted to, that I had the opportunity to speak to Marsha Reynolds. Now, uh, not many people say that their coaching journey began in prison, but for Marsha, that's the case. She was uh, in prison on her 20th birthday, and it was her cellmate, Vicky, uh, who she calls her first tough coach, um, who pushed her to get out there and make a difference in the world. And Marsha has certainly done that. She went on to be a founding member of the ICF after training with Coach Yu in the mid-90s. Um, she was one of the first 25 people in the world to become a master certified coach through ICF and one of is one of 10 coaches who have been inducted into the ICF Circle of Distinction. She has four coaching books to her name, two master's degrees, um, and the list really does go on. Uh, it includes, she's currently um, Global Guru's number five coach in the world. And uh, you can hear in this episode, she's disappointed that she slipped down from number three. Uh, it's a really broad ranging conversation. But we touch on to, um, of course, her journey to where she is today from crisis to knowing, really knowing your role in the world. Why now might be the time to shut up and listen. Um, why she believes that mastery is the deepening of presence and not the perfection of skills. And we uh, spend quite a bit of time getting into her latest book, Coach the Person, uh, Not the Problem, which came out last month. Um, so uh, there's something about the depth of Marsha's experience in this, and that comes through in her book, in her latest book, which, again, we talk about. She's ICF right at the start, and we get into a little bit of, of, of that and what that was like and how to how to help coaching be a thing of its own how to define it and and without the work of her and and the others in those early days coaching is it how coaching as it is now might not exist but but more than that the breadth of experience uh, internationally so much training of coaches so much mentoring of coaches means that this episode is jammed with insights ideas and uh, you know uh, things that you can use in your coaching from tomorrow really rich in little techniques to uh, you know prepare yourself or ideas to use with clients you know I had that experience it's great I love I love um, you know reading books about coaching now and then I, I you know generally I don't tend to read that much directly about coaching these days and it was really fun to read Marsha's book in preparation for this interview because it meant that I started pulling out some of those real fundamentals in my coaching and really noticing them and I, I tell a couple of stories about that in this episode um I think one of the things above all that, that she and I both really believe it's is that um, it's really important for coaches to be able to give them permission to choose how to coach so that we're not a victim of our training or our models. And that's what that book, Coach the Person, Not the Problem, is really about. You know, should we get into how closed questions can be so useful for going deeper with a client. Um, you know, also... One of my favorite bits is uh, she gives a brilliant little uh, insight on what to do if a client says they want a plan as the outcome from their coaching session and why making the plan with them is not always the most powerful thing to do. Um, coach the person, not the problem, made me think of the books that I read near the start of my coaching journey after I'd done my training to kind of broaden my um, understanding of coaching and also uh, ground me in the world of coaching a bit more. And I think that's one of the things that that book can be really useful for you want to check it out the other ones that i read were time to think by nancy klein super good book and also effective modern coaching by miles downey uh marsha and i but as as people who are really passionate about coaching but also think about the world we touch in on on 
another theme a couple of times in this episode, which is something that I'm really interested in at the moment, which is the middle of all the disruption. And we spoke really um, pretty soon after the the death of George Floyd um, and also, of course, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And there's a sense of leaning into what part does coaching have to play in all this all this change that's happening in the world. And we touch on things like being in the questions, not the answers, you know, and why using coaching as an approach to all our conversations right now is so important, giving up knowing and using that passionate curiosity. Um, It's worth saying, as always, that that we'll put links to everything in the show notes. So that includes uh, Marsha's, she mentions a WBEX demo that she did after the recording, but that's live now, that'll be in there. Um, And, of course, links to the book and and all sorts of other things, which are at thecoachesjourney.com. And also just to say, for those that haven't spotted it yet, um, I've added a new page to to thecoachesjourney.com, which includes all the videos of coaching that I've put out there over the years, including some coaching demos, videos of me doing full coaching sessions. Um, We talk in this episode, Marsha and I, about the value of seeing how other people coach. Again, giving that permission to choose how you coach. Now, the videos that I put up there, I noticed a bit of nervousness because they're a couple of years old now. Um, And so, as Marsha says brilliantly, you know, I'm a different coach this year to how I was last year. And I wonder without the depth of experience and learning I've got this year, how did I used to do it? But there's some videos of that. So you can go and watch. Um, I have got in mind to record follow-up coaching sessions with everyone who's on those um, videos, actually. So hopefully I'll get to that um, at some point in the near future. Um, but, we, you know, without further ado, let's let's get to the interview. I love talking to Marsha. It was a total pleasure to spend the time with her, listen to her laugh to get a feel for, uh, and mine, of course, along with her to get a feel for, for, for being in her presence. And I hope you take um, an enormous amount away from this conversation. So on we go with episode 14 of the Coach's Journey podcast with Marsha Reynolds. Marsha, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Thank you, Robbie. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to all the places we might go in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the kind of big picture stuff and the details, uh, you know, and all those things from all your years of experience. But just to start off with, I'm really curious, where did you first come across this thing called coaching? Coaching. <laughs> well, I actually came out of the corporate world in the learning and development. I ran training departments for companies and multinational companies. Uh, one where within three years we went from bankruptcy to top uh, success in the U.S. And um, it was always important to me to work with the top leaders, to really look at mindset and uh beliefs and what do we need to shift in order to move forward. So there was always that foundation. And let me say that, you know, I'm giving away my age, but in the late eighties, <laughs> I got my second master's <laughs> um, in learning psychology. What does it really take to learn? So I was always curious about that. And people would come through my classes and say, I love them and, and then go back and do the same thing. So it was actually right when I was resigning from my last company and I thought I was going to go out and just do leadership training and I read an article about coaching and I'm like, oh, this is it. I really love my one-on-one relationships and really working with people to shift their thinking and, and I know I'm not doing it 
just right because I'm a trainer by nature and I tell people what to do. Um, so I immediately signed up for a coaching school. This was 1995. And it happened to be the coaching school where the founders started the International Coach Federation. So the timing was perfect for me to get into coaching just as it was coming out in the world and to be a part of creating, uh, you know, an association that supported the growth of coaching in the world. So um, it, it was just a coincidence that I chose it at the time that was right. And and I, I went to get my doctorate about six years later just to learn more about how coaching impacts the brain. So I really got into the brain and the science of coaching and found it is the best learning technology we have. You know, and, and people often think, oh, it's a therapy. No, it's not. It's a learning technology. And we can get into that conversation because I'm adamant about that. Well, and, and just now, just to just because it's right here. What is it about coaching that makes it the best learning technology that we have? Because it, you know, there's a big difference on on where we impact the brain when we tell people what to do and when we coach them. So when we're telling them and mentoring them, we're only working with the cognitive brain. Okay, now if they get excited and go, wow, that's awesome, thank you, then maybe it'll get into the middle brain. I'll talk about that in the middle in the minute, but there has to be an emotional reaction. So I may hear you and say, yeah, that's really great. I'll go try it. Um, But then I have so many distractions. By the time I get to it, I'm going to misinterpret what you said. I'm going to change it or I'm going to totally forget. And then when I go to sleep at night, my brain sorts through what I accumulated during the day and throws out the majority of it. So tomorrow I won't remember. And then you're going to get mad at me for not remembering or remembering wrong. And I know that's what hurts most personal relationships. <laughs> but I told you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So coaching actually works in the middle brain. You know, so when I ask you, you know, you know, so what's going on? How do you see this? And you start to tell me your story, you're pulling it out of your long-term memory. All right. And and then I'm just having you look at your story and by using reflection, by saying, so you're telling me this, is that right? Which makes you then examine your story. And then I would ask a question. What is it that makes you see it in that one way? Is there any other possibilities? You know, our questions that we ask. And, you, and that forces you to examine. As soon as you start examining and you start seeing Mm, that belief is old and doesn't serve me any, anymore, or yeah, I am assuming the worst, um, or there's a conflict of values and all the things that we bring up in coaching, that it starts to change the story. Mm. Okay. And so we're changing the story. We're changing the frames um, and what we're holding onto in our middle brain, which as soon as I have an aha or an insight, it'll change who I think I am. It will change how I see the world and it will change my behavior permanently. Okay. And it's the best technology we have for that. Um, But that still makes it adaptable change. I mean, I can scare you into change and it's permanent, but then it's not adaptable. So 
we're not right. going to go there. <laughs> right. And then in the complexity of the modern world, we want the adaptable. We want to equip people mm-hmm. with the adaptable change. Yeah, right. Or a lot of people, yeah, adaptable, agile. Yeah. Um, Got to work on the middle brain. Right. Yeah. So we, I, you know, it's it's so interesting. We could go off in any direction from here, and you know, part of me wants to geek out on all that stuff that you're just talking about and hinting <laughs> yeah, at. Right. But before we do that, maybe we'll come back to it. So, the, were there many coach trainings around in the mid '90s, or you know, um, what, was, what, what, only was, two it, what was only two? I was going to say, like, which what were they at that point? Which two? Which one did you train at? Well, there was actually three. There was CTI and Coach U. Okay. Um, I chose Coach U. It uh, seemed to have a little bit more corporate perspective. Um, and there was a, a smaller school Fran Fisher owned up in um, northwestern U.S., ACT. And uh, she has since sold it um, uh, to Janet Harvey. Um, but, but, but it was a small school. And I got to know her more as we were uh, the International Coach Federation was coming out. And those that were... Um, pioneers in this field all came together. Um, well, there was, a, and there's a whole other story. CTI created their own association that had to merge. And I was a part of the merging of the two into one board into the, the broader ICF. Um, Cause it happened in Phoenix. And the, <laughs> so they asked me to come facilitate it because I had board experience. So, you know, there was, two separate associations that merged um, in the late 90s as well. So it's an interesting history. Interesting history. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I guess I'm curious about two things. One is I'm curious. I'm curious about that. And, and you know, for you, you've been a part of ICF in different ways. You know, I think was in the in your bio, it's like one of the first MCCs, uh, yes. you know, as well. Yeah. It's like there's loads of, and clearly that's, it's, the, the, the importance of that body is there. I'm curious to kind of hear your perspectives on that. But I'm also curious what, so you did the, tra- I'm also curious what happened as you did the training and then came out of it with the new skills mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. that led you into, into working with those skills. Yeah. Actually, the day I resigned, one of the senior VPs came to me and said, oh my God, who am I going to talk to now that you're leaving? Um, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know. You can't talk to me. <laughs> you know? it, but then he said the magic words. He says, I'll pay you. Hmm. Amazing. <laughs> like, oh, people are willing to pay me for this. <laughs> what a great gift from that VP, right? Yeah, that was amazing. And he was like one of my first clients. And, and, you know, again, it was um, the whole synchronicity of timing. Uh, companies were starting to ask me, oh, you do this coaching thing. Would you come teach it coaching to our leaders? So I found in the first couple of years, everything was focused on coaching. But it still took me a long time. People would say, so what do you do for a living? And I'd say, oh, you know, I do leadership training and uh, some consulting. And I also do this coaching thing. <laughs> it took me a, you know, another year or so before I would say, I'm a coach. Yeah. What What do you think that was about? And what helped What helped you shift into? Yeah, I love that order of how we introduce ourselves. Like starts off as a kind of <laughs> mumbled thing at the end, kind of a bit embarrassed about, it, and then gradually it works its way up. It's an interesting question, Robbie, because I often get it with my new coaching students. Um, I talk about coaching fears. You know, what is it you're most afraid of? And 
And, and one of the top fears is that they're afraid they're not giving value. If all they're doing is reflecting and asking questions, it's like, yeah, what value am I? If, I, if that's it. And, and there are some top leaders in this world, I will not name names, that say, no, we have to give them advice, you know, because that's why they come to us. No, it's not. Um, eventually, if there's nothing there for them to draw from, then I might say, you know, would you like some suggestions? But most of our clients are really smart people. They kind of know what to do, but they're stuck knowing if it's the best thing, what direction, is this going to work? Am I going to ruin someone's life? Uh, you know, it's their questions that are getting in the way. And so when I help my really smart clients to find their own way forward, not only are they more grateful, but I have totally changed their brain. So we get back to that learning. So when I started to see really the impact that I was having with coaching and that it was far more than training, that I realized training is just an event to inspire people to learn more. It doesn't teach them. Because that takes the partnership where people, they have the aha moment, they create the commitment, and then they go out and try it. And then they need to evaluate it. And they may take you know, three steps forward, one step back. And so the implementation really works when you work with someone over time. So I like to even combine, you know, uh, maybe a training class and then follow up coaching, you know, and I certainly have, uh, you know, the skills to, uh, to do that, to design the training, but it's the coaching that I found more powerful. Right. So when I realize the value I'm truly giving my clients is number one coaching, then I was felt better saying, yeah, I'm a coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah how interesting though that it was like you almost you had to feel the reality of it um yes. and, but it also sounds like you know you had a real commitment to helping people change yeah and so when you start seeing oh wait this one thing works really well to do that much better than this other thing that yeah. is that what kind of carried you down more of the coaching route absolutely but i told you that uh, ever since that degree, I was always curious, what does it take for people to learn? Yeah. But even before that, what you just said, that, you know, that commitment to help people to change, to be better, that came even long before that. Um, you know, I, I had, and and you can easily find my history um, online, you know, I've done TED Talks about my sordid past. <laughs> <laughs> well, just for anyone who hasn't seen them, you, you can't say sordid past and not expect me to ask for something about that. So give, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give, us, give us something about that. Okay. I turned 20 in jail. Um, I, I went down a really dark path starting at about age 11, 12, that just got deeper, deeper, deeper in the rabbit hole of drug abuse. And um, I still managed to get straight A's in school. I was <laughs> this crazy thing. Impressive. <laughs> Um, you know, and then after high school, it just got dark, dark, dark. Um, but it was an amazing transformation that happened. And again, not because of the criminal justice system, but because of the women I was with in jail that helped me to see who I am and what I could be in the world. You know, it was my big, tough cellmate, you know, who, who like pinned me against the wall and said, stop it. You have no idea who you are. You need to get back out there and, and make a difference in this world. And, you know, she like, wow. wow. And yeah, yeah. My first tough coach. <laughs> yeah. What was her name? 
Vicky. Vicky. Well, you know, amazing work, yeah. Vicky, right? No, oh, I'm grateful to her. I, 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 I have a hidden memoir on it on Amazon called Unexpected Angels. I don't promote it. Um, that tells the story, but, um, but my TED talks do too. And, um, I, I, you know, and since that time, people will say to me, um, what really prompted you to change, to go from being an addict to being multiple degrees and working around the world? And for a number of years, I said, oh, no, I just decided. And then this one woman said to me, I'm not asking you to praise you. I'm asking you because I have a drug addict son I need to help. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) I need to define, you know, what made the shift for me so I can help other people. And I'm grateful, grateful for being alive, for being out here every day because I shouldn't be (laughs) if it wasn't um, for those women and for Vicky. Yeah, I was on the edge. So, yeah, so that was that was really important. So I defined it and I realized it's not what a lot of people think. You know, it really was um, a shifting of who I think I am and, and not as helpless and not a victim. OK, but it, but but that I could define, I could source my reality, I could create my path and I could use my anger to do that. <laughs> not even just my passion, but my anger. And it really launched me in a new tra- trajectory. So I had this desire, but wasn't sure exactly what to do it. So the inquiry took a number of years until I finally found coaching. (laughs) That's it. So I'm totally an evangelist for coaching. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And so, and then I guess as, as time went on, you know, you had this training background, you had the corporate background, but how have you, what have been the key moments as you found your I guess, place in the world of coaching. Hmm. Well, again, you know, being that I, the timing, um, and I always, um, my father was, he said, always said, if I'm going to join something, I'm going to become a leader, otherwise forget it. So I, it was always in my blood. If I'm going to join something, I'm going to be a leader. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I can be a part of this, um, building this coaching thing in the world and the ICF came up and, and I was actually handed the opportunity um, to be a part of the leadership and stepped right into it because I was the president of the ICF um, just a little over two years of joining the board um, because of the turmoil that was going on and the experience, the board experience I had to that to date. A lot of coaches don't have, I was on uh, uh, mental health boards, um, a number of them here uh, before finding coaching. And so I had experience that I could bring to the table because we were right on the edge, the ICF, of where we're going to, you know, really come out and stay viable uh, and exist in the world. And we had to make some shifts. And so um, uh, I stepped into that space and I was asked to step into that space. And I said, yeah, I can do this. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, you, you kind of, you're noting the serendipity of it, of the timing, but also there's a sense that you were someone that they, with the kind of experience that they needed at that time. Yeah. Um, and especially early in an organization's life, right? The people who are involved at that point, 
you know, I, I've had a much smaller scale than ICF in lots of ways, but the small organizations that I've been a part of, trustee for charities and that kind of thing, it's beautiful to be there, you know, quite near the start and, and know that you've got that, you're playing a part in 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 what comes after. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, what, I guess, having seen that and seen ICF and the coaching industry as a whole evolve over the years and... We might, yeah, we might get into maybe now, maybe later, some of the just kind of strange things about the coaching industry and and the the struggles that many of us who how do I, yeah how do we say these things? It's like you know I think that you and I have been reading your book, which has just come out come out just this week as we're recording. Is that right? Yes, June second. <laughs> June second. So it'll be, a, it'll be obviously a little later when by the time people are hearing this, but just been reading that. And one of the things I loved about reading it was I was like ah few we agree you know it's like it's one of those things you know, I'm, I'm sure there are bits that you know i would phrase differently and all that kind of thing but broadly speaking it's just great to hear that sense this is okay yeah we agree on what coaching is and mm-hmm. also you know what makes it powerful but not everyone does those things <laughs> so what's and, and it feels like icf has an important role and has probably played an important role which i'm not even aware of having been in coaching only five years in holding that part of the industry so I, I guess I'm just curious this is a very long and it's barely a question is it but it's like so just to give you that to say you know what what is your perspective on the role that ICF has played f- on behalf of coaches over the last what 20 years or so 25 25 yeah <laughs> um you know some of the, the things we focused on early on um were critical to having coaching be its own, have its own identity and its own profession. We knew that was important. Um, you know, so what drove the, the, the being of the ICF, not just the growth, was the distinction of coaching, the definition of coaching and the coaching competencies. You know, so we'd have our own certification because we're not licensed. Um, and if we had not created those distinctions and defined coaching, it would have just gone, you know, it's still muddled, <laughs> you know, where people call that are consultants call themselves coaches, but they're not really coaching. And um, a lot of people do that. Okay. So we knew that we had to like really, you know, sort out in the world what it is. And a lot of people disagree with what we call it. And, and that's, again, that's just going to happen, but we still needed to say, this is what we stand for. And because I know that the science supports it and they know that, you know, there's thousands of thousands of research articles on the research portal online. Um, and that it is very distinct technology. It is not um, therapy. It is not problem solving. That's why the book title is Coach the Person, not the Problem, because we're not just problem solving. Um, and it comes out of learning theory, which is where I come from. There are some therapies that look like coaching, like cognitive behavioral therapies, looking at limiting beliefs. So there's overlap. So I'm not going to say there's not but it did not come out of therapy. And I know that my doctorate is in psychology. I do know, um, and clinical psych. So I do know the difference. And so we really had to define that. But I have to say that, you know, certification came out just right before I became president. So it slammed me. 
And um, we were in process of hiring our first professional association, and we were kind of stuck in the middle. So I was getting all the emails and, uh, and phone calls, and, and so many of them were from these therapists saying, you should just give me certification because I have this degree. And I'm like, no, we can't do that. You have to prove you can coach. We have to define it, you know, or we will not survive. You know, and we had to come out. So recognize, too, I'm the first ICF president, and I was the fifth, that had a corporate background. Prior to me, it was all personal coaching and small business coaching. And I had the mission of bringing this into executive coaching in the corporate space because I said, if we do not do that, we will not survive either. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and wait, because you were you were already getting some. So it sounds like the corporate world had some idea about coaching already, because I'm not unless I've got the timeline slightly wrong. Because you know you were beginning to get asked those questions, so there was some awareness that it was a thing from the corporate world, but there wasn't the sense that this was it was important to solidify around that. Is that right? When you became president, well. In, on the corporate side, it was it was just again because I uh, became aware of coaching through an article. So yeah, they had been aware of it and and looking at how some of the skills might support them. But um, I have to say, especially here in the U.S., they were still looking at it. Give me a couple of skills so I can just go off and do it. So it's not that they didn't embrace it; they just didn't really quite know what it was until really in the last five years that they've been coming to me saying, okay, we had our workshop, we've been trying this and it's not quite right. And we know there's more. Would you come in and do a deeper dive with us? That's starting to happen here. I have to say that outside of the U S that deeper dive happened earlier, including China Mm, where I tend to teach a lot, not right now, but (laughs) (laughs) um that the company said, we have to do this. We have to listen differently to the younger generation. We don't like it, but we know we have to. That's a great, that's a great response. But, and and how courageous as well, right? We don't like it, but we, we know it's important. Yeah. We know it's important. So, um, and I found the, the embracing uh, coaching as a leadership style and a mindset much quicker in Europe. Uh, than in the U.S., even though it started here and we have more coaches here, um, get in the corporate world. It was just it, it just took longer to get them to see this is a cultural shift. This is a mindset shift, not just here's a few skills and questions to ask. Yeah, why, why do you think that was that it took longer in the states? Because they don't want to pay for training and that's more than a couple hours, you know, or a half a day or to really go into what it takes. Um, and they weren't accepting the reality, uh, how much of that, the shift was needed. You know, it, it's really sad. I was talking to a woman this morning and we were talking about how change doesn't truly happen until there's a crisis. Right. And, and again, we should let's, well, let's bring it in then because, you know, we're in this interesting moment right now um, in the middle of coronavirus pandemic. And then there are lots of other things going on in the States right now after the death of George Floyd. Um, so which, which I'm sure you're much more aware of than I am, you know, several thousand miles away. So it's interesting to slow down in that space that we're in today because yeah, yeah when, when these things happen, 
there is an opportunity for change. Uh, you know, just like in some ways when you were in, you know, with Vicky, like there was a load of disrupted stuff there in your life and there was an opportunity for change and you definitely things did change. You know, and I wouldn't even call it an opportunity. I, I'd call it a need. I'd call it it's, it's a, a forced recognition um, that we have to do this. And every company I worked in too, it's like they would not change until they had to. And um, will that ever change? I don't know. You know, why they do that, there's a multitude of reasons. One, they just don't want to. It's like, well, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, it is broken. <laughs> you know, you're just not looking at the stats you, that prove that. You're looking at what you want to. So, um, uh, it, you know, you can make stats say whatever you want. So, you know, that 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 force change, and, and that's what I'm hoping is happening now with um, – and I'm sad about the whole incident with, uh, you know, and going that's ongoing really with the police here in the States, but that it's, I believe, finally forcing um, that we have to change. And it isn't about, yes, we have to fix things, but we have to listen first. Um, uh, you know, it was, um, Martin Luther King that had said that he, you know, he doesn't really, he was for nonviolence. And um, he said, I don't support, you know, riots, but the riot indicates that voices aren't heard. And I, you remember the first time I taught a class in Kenya and I was talking to her about, I went out on the street and I felt uncomfortable. And she says, yes, there's a lot of crime here, but that's because people are desperate. You know, and so when we look at, you know, what other people will call is like unnecessary violence, but what what needs to be heard? And why do people feel desperate to they have to go to that length? Can we not be in that inquiry and try to understand that? Um, you know, and it was just this morning I was listening to this video and this guy was saying, um, you know, we, we need to just shut up <laughs> and listen. He said, white people, you need to shut up. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah. And, you know, I learned, um, so ACTO, the Association of Coach Training Organizations, has been focused on cultural diversity and inclusion for a number of years in our coach training. Um, and I learned from one of their sessions that, you know, it's not about me trying to explain people my intention. Um, or no, I do understand my, my grandparents were immigrants, you know, bullshit, <laughs> you know, it's about under getting that, whatever I said, um, hurt somebody, you know, or set them off wrong. Can it help me understand? Let me listen to you and let me accept that that's, a, that's your truth. You know, I need to start there you know, to quit thinking I know and to be curious, which is truly the foundation of coaching. So, you know, using a coach approach to all of our conversations right now is so important to, to give up knowing and being in using compassionate curiosity, um, which is a big part of, of the book uh, that, you know, we're not grilling people that we're, we're, we're truly curious because we care uh, is so important. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it feels like, yeah, I think it's on a video on your website or the book's website or something. There's a kind of question, which is like, why another book about coaching? And I think yeah. we're, we're like, we're in that, the answer to that question in this moment. But I just wondered if, if you could maybe tell us a little, tell me a little bit about, I guess you clearly believe in coaching. You've talked about it, believing it on the scientific level. You've talked about the kind of desire for change and the passion for change. And, and then you've talked about this, you know, why now, or an element of that, that, that some of the things that are bubbling up in society right now are about listening, not happening in that way or, yeah. you know, in, in, and, and, and more. What this, you've, you've written books before, but this one in particular, coach the person, not the problem. What, what called you to write that book? Hmm. Well, I never stepped away from teaching. You know, I said, yes, I'm coaching, but I've been teaching coaching skills and, and mentoring. And I was one of the first uh, ICF assessors. Um, and for, I was an assessor for uh, Coach U. There was just three of us. And and one of them, and I won't say his name, <laughs> would just come to the call and say, yeah, whatever you're, yeah, I agree. I agree. So there was really only two of us, <laughs> me and Harriet Simon Salinger, we're, we're the first two assessors. And um, so I, I've been watching coaches and listening to them and hearing where they get stuck for for t- over 20 years now and i'm on faculty for schools not just in the us but china russia and i'm working with julius ordanas and bringing in a coaching program in august in the philippines and i'm just wor- starting working on a new one in india so i'm all over so what i'm saying is is global it's not just here in the us um that coaches have there's just some beliefs where they've gotten stuck in some ruts and um, and they're not fully coaching the person in front of us and, and holding a coaching mindset and really being present and having the conversation, uh, you know, having their reflections, their questions come out of the conversation instead of a list of questions they memorized or oh, I have to follow this so I can pass my certification and checklist coaching. And so these beliefs and their practices and their fears were really coming forward. And, and so one of the, the things I love is every time I do a coaching demo, demo for WBEX, and I've got one coming up on June 15th, um, people always say, you can do that. You can do that. And, you know, I'm doing this big program on breakthrough coaching for WBEX in the fall. And that's going to be one of the big promo things. It's like, yes, you can do this. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll say, but my school said you couldn't. And frankly, I'm not so sure their schools didn't say that. I think, you know, people hear things in a way um, that, like I said, it's in their cognitive brain and they misinterpret it. Yeah, why do you think that is? Because I think that's that's quite that is true. Some of the like, I really agree that quite often the things that people think they're not allowed to do in in you know anything, but let's you know we're talking yeah. about coaching, aren't really things that anyone said you're not allowed to do. So, what do you think's well, happening there? 
Let me give you an example. Um, I used a lot of closed questions up front when I'm really clarifying what is it you really want? You know, where are we going with this? I never get yes or no answers. It really is a clarifying technique, or I, I use a lot of distinctions. You say you're tired. Is it are you physically tired or are you just sick of doing what you're doing? You know, I'm really paring it down to where are we going in this conversation? Um but we teach that uh, the open question is is something we want to focus on because people don't do that well. Um, they don't realize that even the ICF competencies say there's got to be a balance more of open questions and closed. They don't say no closed questions. You know, nobody ever said that. Um, but what they hear is the focus on open questions, asking the what questions, the how questions, because it's harder to do. So I'm going to focus my teaching on open questions because it's harder and you don't do it as much. So what they then interpret, they've been taught in many of their classes, like don't use closed questions. You know, that's just been something that uh, in mentoring and leadership, don't use closed questions. So they tie in their old inherited beliefs with what they're hearing in their training. And then they interpret it as don't ask a closed question. And so then they hear me ask a bunch of them and they go, you can do that? I'm like, absolutely. Let's look at what happened when I did. Now there's an art to the closed question as well, you know, really knowing what's the purpose of it. How is it going to help them? So, um, you know, and, and it's not the why question, you know, why'd you do that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's truly helping people to go deeper to, into uh, where are we going? What is it you really want to create instead of what you have to to have them to look at their stories? I use a lot of reflection, you know, so you're telling me this is the way you see the situation. Is that right? So is that right is a closed question. OK, but it doesn't get a closed answer. They'll say, ah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that that is but there's a little bit more to it or no, you know, somebody told me that that's not my thinking. So my goal is to get them to examine their thinking, to take it out, to use their observer mind, to look at the stories they're living by and what's holding the stories together. And maybe we can pop the stories, which then changes their thinking and their behavior. That's what I'm doing. And so, so what it, what I can do to do that will be some of these, what people think, you know, our hard, fast rules, like coaching is just about asking questions. No. <laughs> In fact, I had a conversation with Michael Bungay-Stanier, who, you know, is uh, his endorsements on the cover of my book, because his big, big bestseller, The Coaching Habit, was about the seven questions. And I said, you know, I just want to know that I, I love your book. And um, I don't feel that, you know, we're in contrast. He says, absolutely not. He says, that book was written for leaders. You're writing for coaches. That book was written for people who, leaders who are always telling people what to do. And I just wanted to get them into a questioning mode. That's it. You know, then when they see the power, then they'll read your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about, about your book when I was reading it and thinking, like, who is this? book it's not for but it's like where would this book have the most impact and it made me think of a couple of books that I read you know early on 
It's like after the training or the certification, and it's exactly that thing you said. It's like you can do that. Just a reminder, just to, just a, like a, a you know, a cent- centered on the core and the the really valuable things in coaching, and, and that's clearly in the book in, in a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. It's like ah, oh, yeah, reminding me of what's important, releasing me from some of those. Uh, yeah, kind Ooh. of be- becoming yeah. a victim of our training or what we think our training said in some ways, isn't yeah. it? And yeah, yeah. And it's it's. I love that you say that about coaching demos. I think it's a really, really underdone thing to share those coaching demos. Um, you know, just just widely. And it, the value of watching and listening to other people coaching, especially people with a lot more experience than us, but even people with a lot less experience than us sometimes, because they're much closer to their training and, and bringing all that wonderful beginner's mind is just a reminder, ah, yeah, you can do that, can't you? And I had a beautiful, um, having been reading your book, I had a lovely coaching call last night. Well, you know, I was just more in tune with that thing that one of the things you say in the book, which is, you know, just, just kind of listening for when, or, you know, not necessarily with the ears, but with the whole body for the moment where something's happening for the client. And then just, 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 just checking with them. What's, yeah. what's happening what in this moment? What's there? What was that? And it's beautiful. Exactly. It's like lovely to watch the people slow right down. And it's, it's not that I've never done that before, but it's, it's why it's great to keep learning about coaching because it just brings that stuff into your consciousness. And then you sit with a client and somehow pick that stuff up. Yeah. And not only is that so amazing, you know, when you're just saying, wow, okay, you just got really quiet and looked away there. Well, what's happening right now? Um, just to share what you noticed and, and see what happens. Because, again, um, we don't stop and examine our thinking on our own. We don't. You know, uh, the behavioral economist, Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow. We need what's called an external disruptor and coaches are external disruptors (laughs) and and this is even in the neuroscience um michael gazaniga talks a lot about we don't have free will on our own our brains take over and the more emotions you have the more it'll force you to do what you would logically not do if you thought about it (laughs) you know and so all we're doing is making people pause you know, and as John Dewey, who I talk a lot about in the book, says, you know, we're just having people climb a tree in their mind, you know, and then look down on their thinking in a way they can't do for themselves. So they can go, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's true. I think that way, but isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, oh, I love there's so many ways you can go from here. I'm, I'm curious to hear you just talk about John Dewey, Dewey a little bit because He's a name that was familiar to me, but and then I had to look him up after re- you mentioned him in the book a bit. But um, it's interesting to get that sense of of how much he might be a part of of the kind of lineage of coaching, even if he doesn't necessarily get that credit. But I also just want to just pull because one of the one of the one of the sections of the book is five crazy beliefs, which includes that you know co- the questions are needed um, or, and only open questions. But I really like this one about reflective statements. You know, people think that reflective statements are too confrontational. And when I read that, that heading, I was like, oh, wow, that is true that people think that. And yet it made me think of an amazing coaching demo I saw before I even thought about doing training. Actually, I used to work at a leadership training organization. And one of the days or the afternoons that people who came on this course had was an intro to coaching skills. And this great um, trainer called Deb Barnard, who's a British woman, she did this amazing demo where she almost only reflected back what was happening to this person. And yet it was 
like reflecting back, just pulling out a few words. And it was almost the most gentle coaching I'd ever seen. Like the client couldn't, didn't even really know that Deb was reflecting the words. It was so gentle. And so it's wow. really interesting that people think it something that can, it's not always gentle, right? Because it can be direct yeah, yeah, communication. Yeah, I was thinking like of Byron Katie. When right. Byron Katie does it, she Exactly, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, it, and her power is in her reflection. Mm-hmm. You know, so she might say, so, you know, how do you know that's true? Um, but But it's in the reflection. This is what you just said. This is what you just said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's amazing. And I want to say that that particular fear comes out of um, a, a lot of my work in Asia, you know, where they're like, Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> and I was like, and there's an interesting belief. <laughs> what makes you think that that's a bad thing to do? Yeah, we, we probably get it more in Britain, actually, than you do in the States as well, no. like, with our interminable politeness. Um, whereas, whereas the Americans and the Dutch, they're there, they're there giving direct, um, serious direct reflection. Well, you know, there's a difference. I was listening um, uh, this week to Gretchen Rubin um, and... Uh, she was talking about the different tendencies and expectations and the styles. And she mentioned the difference between straight talk and blunt talk, you know, and I think I'm going to write a blog post this weekend actually on there's straight talk, there's blunt talk, and then there's real talk. Yeah. And um, right now we're needing some real talk that is, is not just what I think about the situation, but about, uh, you know, let's talk about what's out on the table, you know, and let me listen first before I share that with you. And I'm always saying to people, well, wait a second, I'm not telling them anything out of my own brain. You know, like I even had a, um, a client just yesterday who who got really irritated um, with me. You know, he says, well, you're doing this right now, you know, basically like telling what to do. And I said, okay, let's stop for a second. What I, what I, here's what I just shared with you because they were the words you shared with me. I was just checking in on you um, of what that meant, you know, and, and he's like, oh yeah, you're right. And I have to say at the end of the conversation, he gave me such a great compliment about how this is so helping him. Um, get through his blocks um, and try and in, in communicating to others and what he's trying to get across. But I have to challenge him, but I'm not challenging him out of my head. I'm using his words. So the significant piece of reflection is reflection. It's, it's, it's an active replay of what I hear you say and what I notice in terms of your expression. Um, uh, so, I'm just sharing what you gave me and, and I'm okay. If you get angry, I'm okay. You know, that was my last book was the discomfort zone. It's okay. You know, as a coach, you're not there to make them feel better. You're there to make them see better. They may not like what they see. Okay. That's fine. You just hold the space. Don't react and just let them walk through it because they will. You know, but they may get a little defensive in the process. That's okay. I don't care. But it's also it's also a great that that story is great because they might get defensive about what's coming out of them, and the way to be sure that you, it's uh-huh. not your fault, right? Like as a, as a coach, you know, early, especially early on, the fear is, you know, I, I, 
ah, oh, made them angry. But if you're just giving them yeah. their words back, it's not you, right? It's just when they see that, which they may have never seen. And I love those ones where people say, I love that thing you said, or yeah, that thing you said really changed. And you're just like, no, no, you said it. You said they it. They were literally your words. Exactly. And if we had, had a recording. It's like, don't would... give me credit. I'm just giving you what you said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they like to do that at the end. And so many coaches go, yeah, I'm a great coach. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want to give you the credit for sharing it so I can give it to you, you know, but you shared it in the first place. So that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some kind of thread. And, you know, I think it's, I think you write about it in this book, but I want to just sort of check it because I think one of the ways, it's like, how do we, one of the questions, if I was in a, a coach just starting out still, it's like, oh, so it's sometimes open questions are good and sometimes closed questions are good. And wait, the reflection, but is it, how do I know if I'm getting it right? And the answer to me feels like it's a lot in developing our presence um, in different ways and the different ways we talk about it and really being there in that space for them. But I'm curious. Okay. So I hear two, I pulled out two things in there. How do I know I'm getting it right? Okay. So, um, there's the internal and the external. Okay. So how do I know I'm really picking up something and it's not my interpretation and my stuff? Um, or how do I know that I'm sharing the right thing? Right. Is that, is that right, Robbie? Yeah. I think that, I think both those are worries that definitely go on for people and me sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Um, First off, don't worry about it. Um, I always tell coaches, you know, if you're sitting there thinking about, is this my opinion? Is this my interpretation? Then you are not present. That's a great yeah. point, right? It's like it's like better share, better to share the thing and get it out there than spend the next five minutes wondering whether to do it or worrying about whether you've done it. Yeah, but as soon as you share it, pay attention. Because then if, um, you know, I've seen coaches do this, you know, they, they really kind of start leading the client and, and the client gets irritated. <laughs> they keep doing it. It's like, stop and say, okay, so tell me what's going on. I see you're a little hesitant or resistant. Um, did I go too far? You know, what's happening here? And let them say, and I'm fine being wrong, you know, because what if, if you're wrong, what will people say? That's not it. This is it. <laughs> and then they tell okay. you. So don't worry about it. You know, you'll get better at it um, as you go along and taking yourself, you know, and your own ego out of it. That'll happen as you practice. Um, so just share, but but really work on, you know, what's interesting about when I put the book together, I have the five essential practices and the three mental habits. And I went back and forth. Do I put the mental habits first and then the practices or the practices and then the habits? And I, and I had a long talks with my editor and he says, I think people want to get into the practices right away. And then you get into, yeah, but they're not going to work if you don't do this, <laughs> you know? So the whole establishing your full body presence before you go into a conversation of, so I'm able to receive what you're giving me, you know, not just hear it, but to fully receive it. We get better at that, which then it's not as likely. As soon as I receive it, I give it back to you without thinking. So it's really more of I'm in the flow with you. Um, and if I get triggered by what you say, <sighs> I catch it. 
I release it because I get, I, I get, I'm judgmental. We're all judgmental. I'll judge what you're saying. I, I love that I, bit in the book talking about being judgy. It's great. It's like, yeah, just yeah. To, you I, I feel it. it right here in my solar plexus. It goes, eh. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, oh, look, I'm being judgmental. Fascinating. <laughs> Which allows me to let it go so I can come back and just, you know, share with you what's up, what you just gave me. And, and just, I mean, I know it's in the book, but for people who are listening, who are curious, how do you, when you've got a coaching session coming, how do you prepare yourself so that you can be, have the full body presence? What's your practice or, or habit? Well, interesting thing. I first thought, so I arranged my office to where I look out the windows because I said, oh, I have a beautiful mountain I look at and, you know, and trees and it's, it's such a nice view. Okay. Now, please understand, I live in Arizona, which is desert. And what I quickly found that during the day, while most people at work, there's critters that come in, you know, it's like, oh, there's a coyote. And one day I saw this big, and there is such a real bird as a roadrunner. Okay. It's not just a cartoon. (laughs) And this big, they're big birds, and this big roadrunner came running up. Now, I don't have a lawn. It's rocks. And he had a snake in his mouth, and he started bashing the snake on the rocks. And I'm trying to coach, and I'm like, excuse me, I have National Geographic going on in front of me. <laughs> I love it. Marsha, that just makes me think, though, I love, I'm a big fan of when something happens in the world during a coaching session, what if it's a message from the universe? And I love, <laughs> like, what message from the universe is the roadrunner bashing the snake <laughs> you or your client? Like, it's got to be deep and complex. <laughs> it's like, now I realize I can't do this. There's too many things <laughs> going on outside my window. So I do have a space in my house that's that's cool and comfortable and quiet you know it's in the back of the house and I only go there to coach um and so first off I do that I make sure I'm in that space so there's no distractions and then even if it's a a rush day I've got to like breathe be present remember who this client is how much I care about them I mean even if it's just you know five seconds as long as I can breathe in, clear my space, remember I care about my client, that I'm going in with curiosity and care. I do that. And then, you know, I've really worked on my emotional intelligence, my emotional regulation. I I was like, developed that expertise early on um, before I was, you know, really out there in the world with coaching. And I love seeing that the ICF has it as a new competency starting next year, coaching mindset, which includes emotional regulation to recognize emotional hits um, during our coaching so we can breathe it out and come back and be present. And, and the one piece that I found missing in most teaching about um, emotions was the judgment, that people think judgment is an opinion and they don't recognize it's, it's an emotion. And even thinking, oh, I must tell my client what to do. That's a judgment that they're not capable, you know, that they're not smart and resourceful. And you've just judged them. So, you know, I think that catching judgment as a biological reaction, which, you know, those emotions are all biological reactions first. And then they uh, impact our thinking. It's not the other way around. Um, So to be able to catch 
judgment as an emotion is, is critical so we can regulate ourselves quickly so we can stay present with our clients. So those mental habits are, are, are critical in creating the coaching mindset. So I work on that. Yeah. And, and, and no, I'm not perfect. Um, I don't know a perfect coach. Um, it's a journey that we're always on and I get better every year and wonder what I was doing last year. (laughs) I love that I teach it. It makes me very conscious because I have to do demos in front of thousands of people. I better be good at this. (laughs) I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That teaching and training something does Mm -hmm. change, uh, change the way you experience it. I remember uh, the guy, Phil, who ran the training that I did, he, told a story when we did our second module, I think. So we did like several weekend modules and he said he did possibly his best ever coaching session the day after having taught us the basics of coaching again, just because it got him right back in that space. And yeah. it's, it's definitely... Um, Teach what we most need to learn. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but Marsha, I'm curious because you've clearly done teaching and training of coaching a lot. And this book is in some ways, you know, teaching and training coaching, albeit in book form instead of in you form. What is it about that that you love and how come that's such a part of your work and life? The, t- the teaching? Yeah, the training of coaches, the teaching of coaching. Well, you know, I, I told you what I did before in my background. It's like I'm, I'm even when I get my charts read, I just had my numerology and palm done and in and, and my astrology, everything all says I'm a teacher. So mm. I think I came into this life um, with that archetype. So, so um, yeah, because it's like, what makes me, what drives me to do that? It's not that I'm such an expert that people should know it. Um, <laughs> and I've been accused of that. And I say, you know, no, I'm run by my passion more than the fame. Do I like the fame? Absolutely. Please go out and buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's not the, the, the main driver. I, I have this great, um, one of my true values of life is to learn and to share, to take even technical things and translate them. So understand that 11 of my 16 years in corporations were for technical companies, primarily male engineers, that I was teaching them communication skills, a lot of translation. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> they love the science though. <laughs> yeah. But I had to translate that for them into practical and how they could actually do it and they can make the shift if they wanted to. Um so it I, I saw myself as a translator. Mm. Um you know, so it was more about purpose that I I I find this fascinating things that I think need to be out in the world that's gonna help us come together. But again, I think it comes back to that, those moments <laughs> when I was 20 and, and when I got out and realized that my life had been saved, it was that question like many of us go through when we go through life-threatening situations, which it was, um, why am I here? What is my purpose? So I happened to be in that question in my 20s, which was very early on. Um, but I had reached a breaking point. Either I would um, die, spend the rest of my life in prison, um, or find my way out of the hole. And fortunately, I found my way. So that that great desire 
to help other people find their way um, has been since then. Mm. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier on, but in this, in this time, this moment we're in, this time in history, why is, let me just see if I can get the question. I feel from you, and I think I feel it too, that coaching and coaching skills and coaches have a part to play. There's something for me very much aligned about some of the challenges and disconnection in different ways in the world. And, yeah, uh, you know, what, what, you know, you, I, many coaches have developed in ourselves through our work, you can see how those things meet in different ways. But I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit about the part that you think that coaching and coaching skills and coaches have to play in this next, you know, this curious next phase of, of history where none of us quite know what's going to happen, the, the complexity and the disruption that's going on. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit for us. Why I feel coaching is so important. It's not necessarily you have to be a coach, but taking on uh you know, that coaching mindset that let me be present, let me be, be curious, let me care about what you have to say, that um, we may have academically known we need to do that, but now there's something in our gut that says we have to um, in order for this world to get through uh, this dark time. And that that those of us that come from a place of privilege is our responsibility. Um, to hear, to know, to to get what they're saying. Um, will I ever live out their experience? No, you know. So, so true empathy. You know, I can have a little bit, um, but not. Uh, but to say I've, I don't, I've not lived your experience, so I cannot go to that. But let me hear um, what it is that you feel that and that I can do that we can be together, that, that it really is about respecting and trusting the person in front of us is smart, no matter what their level of education and what they've grown up with. Um, there's also a really interesting aspect. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday uh, about culture that um, in Western civilization, <laughs> you know, which tends to be white. <laughs> so, um, North America, Europe, we tend to focus a little bit more on uh, individual need, you know, and democracy is about my freedom and getting my needs met. We're not communal. One of the things teaching in China um, really opened my eyes to is a communal mindset. Um, and how, like in my classes, I don't know, social status isn't apparent to me because they're all in there together and, and, and they're there and they support each other much better, you know, than we do because they were brought up in, with that, that taking care of each other much more than us. So I'm not saying that their politics is better or anything like that. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying there's a difference between a communal mindset and an independent mindset. 
that the communal mindset, it's, um, I mean, they, they tend to lean all the way over the other way where it's like, Oh, let me make you feel better. You know, I mean, they're, <laughs> I always have to like, don't touch in the, my coaches is like, don't touch, don't run over and hug them. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, cause they, it's what they're doing. You know, people that say, Oh, the Asians don't, you know, don't touch each other. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> especially the Chinese. Um, it's a whole different um, way of looking at things. And so I think, you know, this whole thing with COVID-19 saying, you know, we're in this together. No, we're not. <laughs> Everybody's out for themselves. I mean, look at it, you know, here and in Europe, as soon as we said, okay, you can go outside. They did in mass. <laughs> Nobody took care of each other, you know, where they were much more cautious in China about how am I impacting other people? Is it really safe to go out? Um, so the idea that um, it's not just about me, that the only way that I'm going to have my opportunities and make this world a better place is a better place for all, you know, um, that we need what the meaning of community is, my, my neighbors, my friends, my colleagues, and how can we be with each other to honor each other and um, it's not just I'm out for me that it's somebody said this week, it's not about the strongest of the fittest. It's the strongest of the adaptable. And can we adapt what we need to right now? It's more about truly, if we're in this together, what does that look, what does together mean? Really, what does together mean? And truly exploring that. And so of being in the question, not the answers. Um, is is so critical. And so I see that coaching and the way that it takes to um, to be present and to be curious and to truly listen and, and engage people in the way coaches do um, is a critical time for that. So it's not to tell you to do something or to feel better. It's not about telling. You know, it's about in the way that we listen um, to each other. And, and you'll notice in the book, I say, I don't even like active listening. I hate that because it sounds like it's something I'm doing to you. I'm listening to you. It's like, no, 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 that's not it. I'm receiving what you're giving me. I'm receiving and trying to release judgment about it and be present and, and truly understand. I like the concept of receiving even better than listening. So, um, it's shifting. I believe shifting finally. It took this horrible crisis to make us truly look at how do we connect and how are we together with each other, honestly, sincerely, um, that will shift that forever, I'm hoping. Mm. I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's so many places we could um, jump off that from, but I guess I'm just, you know, the bit that caught me towards the end is there's something about the cognitive nature of our societies as well that you know we mm -hmm. touched on that at the start and again that full body presence to really receive yeah. you know we're an instrument right an amazing instrument with all kinds of of signals that we can pick up and a lot of the time people aren't used to picking those things up and mm -hmm. you know well, you know, I want to say they're good at it. They just don't listen to it. <laughs> uh, interesting. Is that what you think? And so, so what are the what do people do to 
or what can people do, whether they're coaches or not, to get better at listening to it? Well, you know, I actually ran into the research about opening the entire nervous system, the head, heart, and gut, when I was uh, writing The Discomfort Zone. And there are some really good people out there that have been teaching this for a long time, the embraining people in Australia, um, you know, and other, uh, all the somatic people. Um, uh, but the thing about it, somatic, then there's, I, I think, a, maybe a little bit too much focus then on just the body. The nervous system is all three, the gut, the heart, and the brain. So we're not throwing our brain out, <laughs> you know? And, and please don't ask people, so how are you feeling? They don't know. I hate that question. <laughs> you know, I would rather you say, wow, I noticed that you, you got really quiet, almost sad. What's that about? You know, so you might pick up something, you know, in the shift in your heart or in your gut and you just share it. Okay, but share what you picked up. Don't just say, what are you feeling right now? You know, it's like, you know, there's a couple of questions I hate. Like, so what question should I ask you? It's like, <laughs> don't give the way you're coaching. Don't do that. <laughs> don't abdicate to your clients. You know, if you don't know, just say, I'm confused. Where are we going? <laughs> it's a great, great thing to say, right? Because if you're confused as a coach, the client might be well and might be really relieved exactly. to know it's okay to be confused. It's okay. Yeah. Where do you think we're going with this? Yeah. Just state it. You can share. This is what I'm feeling right now, but um, don't ask the generic questions. Use yeah. their words, use their emotions. But back to this. Um, I ran into some fabulous research by a therapist uh, named Sherry Geller up in Toronto, uh, looking at what's called therapeutic presence and the power of opening the head, the heart and the gut before you go into therapy and how it creates a sense of psychological safety where people will open up to you. Critical for leaders, critical for people right now that I will only tell you what's on my mind if I feel safe with you, that you're not going to judge me and turn it around on me. So um, just by the act of <sighs> opening my heart with care, compassion, gratitude, um, I always say, Get your phone out. Open your your favorite pictures. <laughs> You're going to see your cat and your kids and whatever, and they're going to open your heart. Okay, you can do that in a second. Um, so you open your heart, and then you open your gut with courage by recalling a time in your life where you spoke up or stood up in spite of your fears and just really activate that sense of courage. We all have something, even if we were a child. Um, and really sense the openness. So, and we open our mind with curiosity. So again, the mind doesn't go away. You know, it's an open mind because what happens is the, the gut and the heart will pick up signals. And maybe if we're really an intuitive, we can catch it and share it without thinking. But generally it goes up to the brain and the brain interprets it, you know, so the brain is activated anyway. So, um, and for you to formulate the words you're using, your cognitive brain, you know, there's no language here. It's all up here. Um, so can I share it with you before I start interpreting it, <laughs> you know, and stay open and just share with you? So it doesn't feel like I'm using my brain, but of course I'm using my brain because um, I couldn't talk to you, you know, if I wasn't. So um, 
I'm not saying the brain is less important. I'm saying you open up all three and it allows you to receive, but it also creates a sense of safety. It's kind of a dual purpose, which is fabulous, you know, and, and so needed right now um, in these difficult conversations that we're having. Um, there were loads of parts of the, the book that I thought were interesting, but I found myself really curious in particular about the goaltending. And I wanted to make sure we got a chance to, to catch a couple of really nice things in there, really interesting things. I wonder if you could talk to um, outcome is not a problem or a process, which I think is a, yeah, is yeah. a great so thing I to read. Say it's, so, it's so great because I'm film I'm doing a little three-minute video on goaltending tomorrow. Oh, nice. That was another one of those things that, I, that it's so hard to teach um, and that coaches don't get. Like, okay, but we got to know where we're going. There has to be an outcome. And that's the ICF called it setting an agreement is totally confusing. Okay. So they parsed it out to there's the uh, contracting up front, but the agreement in the session. Yes, we have to agree on the outcome. Okay. So a process is in an outcome. What will you get once you implement this process? What will you get when you make the decision that you create the plan? I got to know where we're going. What is it you want to have instead of what you have today? And if you're not sure, that's okay. Let's just have a starting point of, you know, paint me a picture of, of what you would really like to have, even if it's someplace in the future, or even if it's just a feeling that you want to feel more confident because we'll start there. The outcome always shifts as you go deeper into the coaching. So I did a demo for WBEX a couple of years back where the woman, you know, started with that. She was going back to work after uh, medical leave and, and um, she was just, she started with, I, I just want to go in feeling, uh, you know, confident because I've been gone for a while. Okay, that's fine. We started there. Um, but as we got into it and I was really listening, no, she said she wanted to feel strong. Okay, so we defined that. Um, and, you know, first it was physically. Okay, so what is it that you think, you know, that you're not ready? Or, well, you know, and she kept going, well, but. Okay, well, but says there's something else going on. Okay, so let's explore that a little bit more. What is it really that, you you know, that's getting in your way of, of going in and just succeeding? Because often they will say, yeah, and I know I can do that. Okay, so if you know you can do it, what is it that you're that's really getting in the way of you feeling good about doing it? Um, you know, we start exploring their beliefs, their assumptions, the, the things that are paralyzing them. We kept getting deeper. And I said, okay, so it sounds as if um, you're worried that as soon as somebody uh, disagrees with you that you're going to backtrack and that you're going to blame your illness on that. You know, and she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's my concern about credibility. And so we looked at that a little bit and it, I kept saying, is that what you want to work on? We, and then we drilled down and she finally said to me, it's this exactly right here. It's this craziness that I do to myself. I have all these worries that puts me into a tailspin, um, you know, and I can come up with all the excuses in the world, but it's about my own what ifs brain swirling. I said, okay, is that what you want to work on? How to manage that, you know? And afterwards, 
um, one of the observers said, I want to ask the client, when she did that to you, did it annoy you that she kept saying, is that what you want to work on? Is that truly it? Is that where we're going? And she says, yeah, it was extremely annoying and it was exactly what I needed. (laughs) You know, I need to know it's like in the engineering world, we always did a root cause analysis. Okay. I want to know really, really what's at the surface here that's causing this turmoil, you know, and it's within your beliefs, your, your, your focus on your assumptions about the future, the predictions you're making. And, you know, there could be a conflict of values between the work you're doing and, 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 and what you have, or it could be a social need. I need credibility from people or, um, I won't feel strong. We're going to explore those things. Again, that's not therapy. I'm just saying, this is what I heard. What do you think? Is this what you need? Do you need to do something to get that? It's about where you're at today and how you're going to move forward. And we're just examining your thinking. Okay, I'm a thinking partner. I'm not trying to fix you or heal you, you know, or go into, you know, when did you create this? When you were three? I don't care. when this first started that you worried yourself to death. I don't care. (laughs) Let's just look at how it's impacting you now. And do you believe you can change it? Yeah. And, and, you know, I really like that sense of the root cause and just imagine, I mean, for that woman, I can really get it right. Then the demo, it's like who else in her life ever would spend so much time with her trying to just understand just, you know, just what this, really what's the actual thing here that matters? Yeah. That, yeah, that, right. And so getting to that outcome is, can be the breakthrough, can be the entire coaching session. For me, it often is because the moment that she went, ah, that's it. It's like, that was the breakthrough. <laughs> right. She knew exactly what she needed to do. And once you have the break, you go to actions then. Yeah, it's a bit like the, is it, I think it's an Einstein quote, but it might be an apocryphal one about if I had an hour to solve a problem to save my life, I'd spend 55 minutes making sure I had the right question and then yeah. five minutes trying to answer it. Something like that. Uh, I can't remember if I've got it quite right or if it's actually Einstein, but it's the same kind of thing sometimes. Once that is actually clear to someone and you've, it's, in that case, you've got through all their kind of thinking to the actual yeah. truth. If you don't have that, you're going to end up chasing your clients. And that's what I hear coaches do. They go around in circles around the problem and they chase their clients and the clients might appreciate having a safe space to talk, which is fine. That's a great value. I've had executives that that's all they needed because they didn't feel safe anywhere else. Um, But what's happening is all you're doing is giving them, you know, they'll go, oh yeah. And they talk it through and they process it and then they choose an action. Um, But it's a surface and the problem's not likely to go away like in why you do a root cause analysis, you solve the surface problems, it shows up somewhere else. <laughs> and uh, it's, they probably won't even commit to doing it. You know, so they'll say, yeah, I know it is that I need to do. And then the next session they say, oh, I didn't have the time. So we didn't really get there. You didn't change their thinking, right? And how they see that you didn't break through the frames. And so, um, it's okay to be a sounding board, but not all, all the time. You're not really coaching them. 
Mm. And, and there was uh, there was a particular bit in that section I liked as well, or I was, wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, there's a question of what to do when the client says they want a plan. And there was a, some yeah, really yeah. nice stuff around that. Can you, would you mind sharing that? Decision. That's always, it's like, okay, so could this person plan without you? I always say, if they could do it without you, then, you know, don't coach them on that. So um, it's like a story I've often told about my my client, a very accomplished senior VP in a large retail chain. And she's like, I'm overwhelmed. You have to tell me how to prioritize. You know, and I could have, and we could have talked about what's important, you know, what's the criteria, blah, blah, blah. But I said to her, that's fascinating. You're the senior VP of human resources for one of the largest companies in the U.S. Prior to that, you were extremely successful corporate attorney. That's how you got this job. I know you went to a really tough law school. Somewhere along the line, I figured you, you had to know how to prioritize. What's stopping you now? And she's like... Oh, I've lost my vision. I don't know why I'm here. (laughs) There's the outcome, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's different. So you see, again, the person in front of you, um, what's stopping them from going off and doing the plan on their own? That's what I want to know. And and yeah, and then let me just actually catch because I think this is an interesting one, especially again, it's like things that new coaches have when they start out. So there's then there's a tension though because the client, but just uh, you know, I, I could give an answer to this, but I'm curious of yours. The client says they want something. In coaching, we follow the client's agenda, and yet what they really want, or what you might be saying, or people might think you're saying, is yeah, but actually there's something more important than what the client says they want, which is what they really want. Or something like that but yeah do you want to could you speak to that tension or it may not be a tension and i may be just describing it strangely okay i'm very very much in my original sessions with clients or chemistry sessions whatever just tell them i'm coaching you around your issues not for you to do your work so i tell them up front um so that i i set the expectation but again remember you're coaching the person you know, not the issue. So it's like, okay, so we could go through some of your pros and cons on your plan. Um, I'm, and I might even just ask the question, if you um, took the time to do that, could you do that on your own? You know, so can I just ask you, you know, what's been, what stopped you? Is it timing? Is, is there something that you need to talk through in order to do the plan? I want to be of value to you. Um, And I feel you could do this on your own. So what do you think about that? So I still am giving them the option. Mm. You know, that client example I gave you, she'd been my client for a long time and I knew. And she <laughs> yeah. was fine. And, you know, my executives like me to be in their face anyway. So, you know, I, again, it's the expectation yeah. of our relationship. So remember, a plan or decision leads them to something else. I want to know what is it you will have once you create the plan? Um, uh I just want to know where we're going with that. You can't even create the plan anyway if you don't know what the outcome is because, you know, then, you know, you don't have an anchor for it. So it'd be really great to know what the plan's going to give you, Mm. you know. And I was listening to a, a, you know, I do a lot of mentoring. I was listening to a recording where the woman said, you know, I I, I do want um, to really look at, uh, you know, before I decide to leave this job, you know, what's the good and the bad? I want to do a pros and cons list and whatever. 
And the coach, you know, said, well, okay, we'll start there. And they did. And, 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 and then the client kept interrupting and saying, yeah, and I really hate this. I really hate this. And, you know, and finally the coach said, you obviously have opinions about this and, 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 and it sounds like, you know, what you want to do. I'm just wondering if this pros and cons list is helping. And she says, Oh God, no, you know, I can go do this on my own, <laughs> you know, but this got me to really to thinking that what I really want is to leave this place. And I'm afraid to say it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. It shifted the coaching. So she kind of let the client start with that and that's okay. Like I said, where they start is most of the time not where it ends up. So, you know, okay, so let's just look at that for just a little bit, especially if, if you say, um, okay, so what are you going to have when you get this decision? And they're saying, well, you know, I don't know yet. I need to do this first. Okay, so let's just start there. You know, and it's okay for them not to know exactly up front. Once you get into the conversation, it will emerge. Because they do know. They're just afraid to look at it. I have found most people that say I have a decision to make. They've already made the decision. They're afraid to take action. Yeah. That's a powerful thing. I another thing is like written down just under where I wrote that bit on my notes was exactly that piece. What a powerful insight, which like, I'm just going to reflect it back in case anyone listening missed it, which is people say they need help making a decision. Almost always they've already made the decision. What they need is the help being brave enough to, to take it. Good. Yeah. And you could hear it when they described the options, <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, I really want to do this, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, they're paying me a lot of money and <laughs> I have a family and, and there's no energy there, you know. And oftentimes when I find when they say they have to make a decision, they've gone to an either or. It's either this or that. Sometimes I, I might even start with so so it sounds like you've got the extremes. I'm just wondering if there's middle ground that you haven't really looked at. Oftentimes they haven't done that. You know, it's either I do it or I don't. It's like, really, you know, can you, is there for you a place that this is a journey and not a decision? Yeah. And I think in a way, just to catch it, I think that's another place where support from a coach it's like creating the fitness for what we need in the modern complex world with all its challenges right is for people to be able to see the difference between the one extreme at one end and the one extreme at the other and there's actually plenty in between mm -hmm. um Marcia, i want to get to before we finish in the not too distant future i want to get to a little bit about how your work looks now and and other than the book what's coming up for you um, but before that, um, I asked for some prompts. Um, I always do for guests. And you gave a great one, which I can ask. I would have, might have asked anyway, but when I saw it, I was like, that's so good. And it's a selfish one for me because I'm working on a couple of books at the moment. And I have a uh, regular thoughts of why the hell am I doing this? And the prompt that you <laughs> gave me was, <laughs> um, what value do you get from writing books when the process is long and the profits are little? And so I wanted to ask you that question um, purely selfishly. Um. Well, for me to start off with, I've always seen myself, you know, I said I'm a teacher, but I've always been a writer too. I won a poetry contest in the second grade. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> and so I always had dreams of being a published author. When my publisher signed me, I cried, you know, yeah, so. Amazing. And I always tell people, if you don't like writing, don't write a book. You know, please don't write a book if you don't like to write. 
<laughs> yeah, honestly. Or actually, my first book, I recorded a workshop I taught and had it transcribed. You know, and then I started from there because I just didn't know how to start. And that was a good way to get something out there. That book I, I wanted out there because I, I knew as I was teaching and speaking, and we haven't talked about that, but I also have taken a lot of improv acting and really, really honed my public speaking so I could speak to thousands and, and do keynotes and all of that. I've worked it. Um, and that started because my dad would put me on tables and have me sing songs to people. Now I don't sing. <laughs> and that's a whole other story why I don't do that. <laughs> but I like the attention. So <laughs> um, to be a speaker and to be out there, they always say you have to have a book. Well, I found that um, having a small book, a self-published small book, is a good brochure. I would give it to people and, you know, they would read it and want to hire me to be their coach or um, bring me in to teach a class. So it was a marketing tool, really, the, the first one, and that I wanted to get these things down because people always say, well, do you have a book? Do you have an audio? Yeah. Um, that was before they were saying, do you have video? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, and then Wonder Woman, my next book was really uh, my doctoral dissertation. So that was like, wow, I met my publisher and they wanted to publish it. That's cool. How many people get their dissertation published. So that was different. But then Discomfort Zone and Coach the Person came out of, I'm seeing a need in this world that I love, my community of coaches. And um, I'm mentoring and teaching and they're screwing up in a lot of similar ways. And I want to address this. And I, and I think I can do this and get it out there um, by writing um, that I can't just do one-on-one uh, -on -one. and and that the book it's it's will increase my visibility so I have more conversations like this um, we may not be talking if I hadn't published coach the person so um, the book helps and then my speaking helps give credibility to the book um, the book lasts longer <laughs> than a moment with me and so there's great value to that um, um, but again, you need to be serious about good writing and getting, um, uh, you know, good editing and layout if you're not going to go through a publisher. And these days it doesn't matter. I've enjoyed my relationship with my publisher, but my self-published book is good too. Um, but with a publisher, you'll make no money, but there's a broader visibility. So, you know, it's a give and take. Um, so I enjoy the process you know, but people come to me and say, I want to get a book out there. And I say, why? Well, because I want to create visibility. Um, do you like writing? No, I hate it. <laughs> but, you know, a good ghostwriter. Well, no, I don't. They're out there if that's what you want. And, you know. But but why don't why not do something that you actually like doing as a way to get visibility? Is, well, is and it? these days, there's so many ways. You don't have to write the book. Back then it was. But now, you know, people are watching videos and um, you know, reading snippets of things. Um, I don't even know blog posts if they're going out or not, but you know, graphics with quotes. <laughs> People love that stuff these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my little three minute videos. Yeah. They love that. So yeah. <laughs> oh, that's no, those are nice. That's a nice answer. Um, 
And I think that one of the things that you kind of touched on as well that I got a real feeling for as you were talking is the book is working when you're not actually, isn't it? You know, for you, you know, it's like if, if there's these messages that it's really important for you to get out, then actually the great thing about this book is you didn't know it, right? But it was doing work in Battersea in Southwest London this week, right? Monday yes. to Monday to Thursday or whatever it was that I, you know, isn't that, that's super cool, right? It must feel cool for you. It feels cool it, for me. Oh, it is. Yeah. When they, you know, link with me on LinkedIn, oh, I've, you know, been reading and using your book and, and all over the world. Yeah. So that's, that's a cool, that's a really cool thing. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you feel that too. Um, so Marsha, tell, just before we finish, tell, tell me a little bit about, we've talked about, um, the book and the writing and, and we, you know, the teaching that you do and that it's international and training. What does your one-on-one practice look like these days? The, the people that you're actually working with, do you work with a lot of people at once? Anyone even anymore? I don't know. We haven't really asked that question, how much that happens and how, how does that look? Cause I just think there's something really interesting for someone who's been doing this for 25 years. You must've experienced a lot of different ways of working and have a lot of thoughts about, you know, about how to work and where that's come to. And just curious what comes to mind as what you've learned about how to work with people one-on-one and how your practice looks these days. Okay. A couple of things I want to share when you say these days, well, these days is not real days, you know? So, um, True. Yes. Very true. Perhaps. Yeah. If, if this was, you know, in the yeah, average time, yeah, yeah. The, the pre, the kind of right up, now up, my until, coaching, up until yeah, March, coaching, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right now my coaching practice is just mentoring coaches, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, right. And that's useful. Just to say, that's useful to hear as well, because you know, no one really knows what a lot of the time what's going on for people in the middle of this this time. My my practice has slowed down quite a bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and because I do mostly leadership, corporate, and it's corporate contracting. You know, that's just a stopped for right now. So, um, yeah. So so that's that's kind of not real. But there has been a, a a journey. I started primarily with. Uh, one-on-one clients and did, you know, both personal and corporate, I morphed into what I enjoyed the most was the leadership corporate coaching uh, and not personal coaching. And it, also my fee structure went higher and it it, it worked, um, you know, for more of the leadership corporate. And I'll, I will work with uh, consulting firms that work with coaches and and I'll do some of that, but I don't have a lot of coaches. I would say maximum five because I travel too much. Okay. For a little while, I tried the team coaching, but two things. Um, one, it, it didn't work for me because of the consistency of my travel. And two, I didn't like it. You know, I don't like coaching teams. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's a big thing now and it's, it's you know, a, a income or whatever. But, you know, you got to decide if you like it or not. And it's a lot of work and um, a lot of frustration. And if you're good at it, it works. And there's people that are, and it's not my thing. That's all. So I don't. Do and, that. and for you, how do you know if things are your thing? Did I walk away saying, "Yeah, I like that"? <laughs> nice. And most of the time with team coaching, I didn't. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, perfect. because generally I was brought in an intact team that was like so dysfunctional already. Um, if it's a new team, it was great. You know, we kick it off. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. We could do contracting and go forward. New teams, great. Dysfunctional teams, not so much fun. And I did a lot of that in my corporate life. I wasn't necessarily coaching them, but I was even seen as the team police in my last 
uh, my last company, because if <laughs> I came in the room, they knew they were messed up. That'd be a cool name for a consultancy, actually. They wouldn't it? the team police. Team police, yeah. Name. Well, and usually I found they didn't have a combined vision, a shared vision. Um, they they were working at different, for, they didn't have an outcome that they were all going toward. They hadn't articulated it. That was usually the problem. So I could fix them a little bit. Um, um, but I, so I know how to do it. I just don't choose. So what I found was I love teaching, you know, and I do a lot of mentoring, um, with coaches going for like their PCC, their MCC, um, and, and, and mentoring of their skills, not, um, uh, helping them establish their business. Um, you know, I might, if they have some questions, I'll share, but I don't know, you, you know, it, Business acumen is a whole different thing. Um, that's why the ICF created the whole line of, you know, here's how to teach you to develop your coaching business. There's a ton of people out there doing that <laughs> and making money off coaches, you know, so I'd be careful, really vet them before you give them your money. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I, I and, and I, again, my archetype at, at heart is, is teaching, but now I have to continue coaching in order to stay with ha with being the teacher, going deeper with the teaching, the writing, the mentoring. Uh, so I can't just go do that. You know, they always that the professor who doesn't do have so any ideas. There's some integrity gap, isn't there? If you don't, and it's a bit like if you're a, if you are a, if you're a coach that only coaches other coaches, it, the same thing yeah, is yeah, kind of no. true. It's like something just not quite real about that. Exactly, exactly. So no, I, I wouldn't do that. So I always have, you know, I say no more than five max, um, you know, when things are, are rolling, um, that are not coaches that are, uh, you know, actually leaders. But uh, so no, it's not a huge amount. Uh, and I charge a lot of money for that now. So I don't need, you know, like even three is fine with me. Um, and you know, we do the chemistry session and we both can tell if I'm the right coach for them. <laughs> a lot of times they're still looking for somebody to tell them what to do and a mentor or whatever. And it's just, um, you know, I will refer, um, but please anyone listening to this, please don't email me and ask me to refer to you because <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens. I have the people I refer to already, you know, so until my, I get to be, number one coaching guru in the world and everybody and their brother comes to me. <laughs> Wait, you're pretty close to that, aren't you? Number five. <laughs> I was three, but my oh, goal... Oh, no. Who's overtaking you? Know, you? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Least, yeah, yeah. No, there needs to be a woman up way up there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it also sounds, Marsha, like, you know, you were saying a bit earlier on with the, I'm not here to help you, um, you know, plan out your pros and cons. That in those conversations, you're really clear about that stuff. And that's, I'm sure, one of the ways that, yeah, you find out pretty quickly if if you're the right person for those people. And if not, and you just, you sound the way you talk about it, like you're just very grounded in who you are as a coach. You know, in my initial coach training, one of our first classes, they said, you know, define your ideal client. Um, well, I, I did, but back then you didn't really know who that was because, because frankly, it's a merging of who I want to coach, but what's the world calling me to do? The you know where's my sweet spot in coaching? And 
Um, so that refining of my ideal client has happened over the years. So, but, but you should have that picture, you know, this is who I work best with and, and know that even in any good coaching relationship, it could after even a short time uh, that it's like, this recently happened to me, um, to where we really clicked at the beginning. We did some really good coaching and then, um, she went away on, uh, some journey um, and came back and canceled the coaching, never telling me why, you know? And, um, you know, I think I know in our last session, um, there were some things that I would change when I look back on that, that I, I got, you know, maybe too friendly with her and, uh, and didn't, or maybe I pushed her too much, you know, I, but whatever I, something happened and because she didn't tell me then I'm just speculating which was really sad I was hoping she would at least uh, tell the state the stakeholder but they all said no she just decided she wanted a different coach and and so in truth um, I think she wanted someone to tell her uh, we went through some things and she got to the point where it's like no I now need someone to tell me what to do and honestly, she often said her husband told her that. <laughs> you need someone to be more direct with you. To, this is how you should deal with this or that. And, mm. you know, so um, but, it just it, happens. It, it just yeah. happens. And, and it's great. Thanks for sharing that because I know that people listening in, you know, I, I, I'm really glad that my um, the, the person who's done a lot of mentor, I've done a lot of mentor mentoring with, she's mentored me, I should say, you know, I've had a couple in different ways, a bit like that. And it's quite affecting, especially the first time it happens where someone just disappears, yeah. you know, almost off the face of the earth. And it's like, what is, what do I, how do I hold this? And I think it, you know, what you just said, it's, it's, it's tricky. And without the actual information, guessing is not really, <laughs> is not, is not really worth it. Yeah. You know, on the flip side, I did a chemistry session with this new, new leader, um, technical mind um, and he really wanted to be successful in his new new senior position um, and um, I did it through a consulting firm and a, a big big company here big fortune 100 and um, they came back to me the consulting firm and said we got feedback for you of why he chose the other guy and not you we thought you would like this so you can adapt for the next time the feedback was she was like so great and listening to me and hearing me and asking me questions to make me think. But the other guy came in with tools and here, use this, do that. <laughs> and so that was so much more proactive. I chose him. And, you know, and I had to say, I said to the consulting firm, I said, um, actually, you gave me a compliment, not uh, tough feedback. Um, and I'm wondering how you educated your client on what coaching is what your definition of coaching is because maybe you and I don't see it the same way you know and I neglected to ask them that in the first place you know uh, they had read all my stuff and I thought they knew what type of coach I was I assumed and I think they just saw me as a big visible coach and didn't really look into that so I realized that my uh, setting the expectations around coaching has to be with the stakeholders, not just the client. Yeah. 
Yeah. How interesting. But I think that, you know, that even in itself is a, is a tension, isn't it? People, sometimes clients desperately think they want tools and structures and all that kind of thing when what they, you know, and it may be that that person chose perfectly for them in this moment, or maybe they will still be uh, facing the same things because no one's interrupted their thinking um, in the way that coaching does. Um, in- yeah. Maybe they needed both. I, it's not that I never give tools and, and, and no, of course, yeah suggestions you know but i start with coaching and determine what it is they really need um you know and if there's nothing so if this guy really 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 never uh had any experience but you know i would even step back and say did you ever have a leader in your life that you liked you know or a teacher what'd you like about that would you like to integrate some of that into into you i I would still explore it first before I started throwing uh, things at them. But if that's what he wanted, he wanted mentoring and it wasn't explained. Yeah. Yeah. And that conversation with the sponsor sounds, yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. the definitions of coaching, right? It's almost like back where we started, isn't it? Marsha, I'm a, I know that you've got other things to be doing today. I'm curious before we finish, is there anything else that it feels important to, to share in this conversation right now? Anything that we haven't said that, that's coming up for you? You know, I think what I had said earlier about every year I realize I'm a better coach and wondering what I was doing last year (laughs) and certainly what I was doing when I started. Now, it wasn't that I wasn't providing value. People felt safe and they talked and they gave me great testimonials. I just wasn't really coaching (laughs) when I started. So we do provide value in giving people a safe space to be who they are. But that this is an ongoing um, uh, journey. We don't just go through school and we're done. And, and, and the deeper you go with what it really is and how to be with it, the more fulfilling it truly is. And, and so the whole, you know, continue your development, you know, it's understandable that in certification, you really need, you know, solid, uh, CEUs that develop your practice, um, because you're never done. You know, so, you know, mastery is a journey, not a destination. We've all heard that. Uh, (laughs) um, But I think it also helps us as humans. So getting back to, you know, I always say, you know, mastery is the deepening of presence, not the perfection of skills. Right now, it's not the perfect thing you're going to say to people. It's the presence you hold right now, even. It's so important. And that just keeps getting better um, over time as we develop our instrument. <laughs> Absolutely. Beautiful place there to bring the conversation to a close. Um, I'll, I'll put a link into the book and so all the other bits and pieces we've touched on so many great, um, little references and things. And we didn't, we didn't talk about John Dewey next time. We'll have to have another conversation <laughs> just about him. Um, another time, um, Marsha, it's been mm-hmm. such uh, a pleasure to speak to you and yeah, best of luck with, with the book and, uh, yeah, look Thank forward you. to speaking again sometime in the future. Yeah, me too. I really enjoyed this, Ravi. Thank you. Okay, take care. You too.